So we're here at the Society for Neuroscience. My name is Mitchell Belgian. And Shelley Menelosino. And we are here with... Robert Wilson. And Robert Wilson, please tell us where you are affiliated. I'm with the Princeton Neuroscience Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. Meeting. So you were part of the panel today, and it was on risk and decision-making. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you would tell our audience a little bit about what you presented. I, it's titled, Why the Grass is Greener on the Other Side. So what I uh, talked about today and the work that we've been doing is really to try to understand how people make decisions between an ambiguous choice that they don't know a lot about and a known option that they, they know a lot about. You know, so for example, do you go out to dinner with your friends that you know well or do you go out to dinner with people that you've just met who might be more exciting but they, they, you know, they might not be, but at least you'll learn something by going there. Um, and so what we're trying to do is understand the, the sort of neuroscience behind these decisions. What I presented today was just the sort of behavior behind these decisions and how ambiguity affects the decision to either explore or exploit. So when you are making this decision, you have to abdicate one choice for another. Is that correct? Yes. So you're choosing between the ambiguous choice and the, uh, and the known option. So the ambiguous choice projects clues, correct? So, yeah, so it's really that the ambiguous choice you have a little bit of information about, like going out to dinner with people you just met, you've got some idea of what they might be like at dinner, but you're not absolutely sure, whereas your friends you've known for, for years, you've got a very clear idea of what they're going to be like as dinner companions. But did you say that the classic understanding is, is you're not even sure why people would choose an ambiguous decision? Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely true. So the we talked about these two sort of competing intuitions. One is that you know, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. That was the title of the talk. But the other, which is the sort of um, standard view in psychology, is that the unknown is scary. Um, when you give people one choice between just an ambiguous option and a known option, people prefer the known option you know, by a huge amount. Um, and so our idea was that, well, in that case where you only get one choice, you don't get the opportunity to use that information to guide your decisions in the future. So we thought if we give people more than one choice you know, five choices, ten choices, that they actually might be induced to, to seek out the ambiguous option and explore. Now, is that five choices that are all about this one ambiguous choice? Yes. So it's like you get to make the decision of, it's like you're at a conference for five days and you get to choose either going out with your friends or this person that you've not met before and you get to do it, you get to make that same decision five times on five different nights. I see. So you engage that unknown more than once. Yes. And if, you gain knowledge of that unknown as those choices continue. Exactly. So as if you, if you go out to dinner with an unknown person on the first day and they turn out to be fun, then you can stay, stick with that person and you know, you'll have a great time. But if they turn out to be horrible, well, you can just go back to your friends and you'll have a decent time with them. Now, aren't those five separate events... They are. They're five separate events, but they're sort of linked by, by what's sort of driving the reward underneath that. So the, the person is sort of the rewarding thing, and you're finding out information about that person by sampling them on five different dinners, five different occasions. So what made you sort of create the model? Did you realize that we as humans actually do sometimes like ambiguity, and you were trying to figure out when we would? I sort of had the idea that you... We're thinking that if 
we might learn something new, then that might have some benefit for us. Yes. Is that what you were trying That's to get at? Exactly. It. So optimal theories of decision-making, sort of computational theories that have been around for, I think it's about 40-odd years now. What are those? So Maybe just for our audience. This theory is, is, is known as, I guess the, the classic one is known as the Giddens Index. And what it does is it allows you to replace ambiguity with a value. And you can compute essentially a value for each of the options that combines both the sort of expected value and the ambiguity. And then you make a choice which, where you just choose the one with the highest value. And that allows you to maximize your rewards in the long run, and provably so for in certain cases, in certain limited cases. So the sort of optimal theory suggests that people should be ambiguity-seeking when they have opportunities to use that information, but it had not been seen so clearly in the literature, in the psychology literature up to now. I see. And so you designed this study, so it wasn't just a one-time choice, you had, they knew they were going to have to make 11 choices, is that right? So we, yeah, so we, we had them play um, three types of games. In one game, they get just one choice. In one game, they get six choices, and we tell them. We tell them for each game. And in the third game, they get 11 choices. And we have them play these three types of games over and over again. But, of course, we cue them as to how many decisions they've got. And what we were looking for was how their behavior changes as the number of decisions they've got to make increases. And what, what do those decisions entail? So our task was, you know, we, we couldn't have people choose between different fields of grass. So we had people choose between gambling on one of two different slot machines and we you know it's it's not like a real slot machine a casino where you're probably going to lose it was a nice slot machine and they always got something and each slot machine you know one slot machine paid out say 50 50 cents every time plus or minus eight the other one paid out say 45 plus or minus eight but we didn't tell them that they had to figure that out by sampling them I see. Um, so we, we let them sample one option three times. That gives them you know, a certain amount of information about it. And then one option once. That gives them less information. And then we asked, how much do they choose that ambiguous option, the one they only got one piece of information about, as a function of how many decisions they had to make in the future? So why did you have the ambiguity be a lesser value each time than the known? So... So in the example that I, I showed in the press conference, that, that's absolutely true. I showed an example where the, the ambiguous option had a, the, the one sample you got was I think like 46, and then the samples from the known option were about 50 or 60. What we actually did in, in the full experiment was we, we parametrically manipulated that difference between the means of, of the, the ambiguous one and the known one. What does that mean, parametrically? So we would have... For example, we'd have uh, one case where the, the difference in means from, from the ambiguous one to the other one would be minus 10. So the ambiguous one has a lower mean. But then we'd, you know, on, an, on another game, we'd have the ambiguous one be the same mean as the other one, or the ambiguous one be a higher mean, 10 points higher. Okay. And so by, and by sort of calculating how people change, modulate their decisions as a function of the difference in those means, we're able to actually compute how much value they give to the ambiguity in its own right or reducing the ambiguity. There are studies that show that people are actually very, very quick at intuitively appreciating a lesser value, that they realize there's a losing deck on one side compared to a winning deck. 
But you know what you got here is you know one deck, you don't know this other deck. But I'm saying that the experiments show you do know those that other deck quicker than you might appreciate. So only if you choose, only if you're interested in it. That's, that's, is that right? So, so you, you do learn it quickly, and that, that's actually why we focused on just the first choice. So we, we, we forced them to, to play one option three times, one option once, and then we just focus on that first choice. Oh. And that's, that's key because it's the same... You know, everything else is the same across the, the horizon conditions on that first choice. And there's no sort of interaction between their choices, what they, what they chose, and, um, and their learning. So what you're saying is that was your model, and then, then if they had only one choice to make, and the second time if they had to do it six times, and then if they had to do 11 times, if there were 11, if they knew that there were going to be 11 choices their first choice might be more ambiguous than if they... Is that right? That's exactly right. So on that first choice, they become more ambiguity-seeking when they've got 10 more choices to make than when they've got no more choices to make. Oh, but then, then that limits the loss. They have 11 choices, and so they have the possibility of correcting their ambiguous choice. Exactly, exactly. So they can come back. They can come, they back. Can come home. Yeah, it's they like can sniff and then they can sniff and then they can. If they don't like it, they can avoid it. And if they they do like it, they can stick with it. But the the classic uh, example, uh, evolutionary wise, is that um, if cavemen ventured out to find out what the other tribe was doing, they might die. And so it was safer to stay with your own kin than to go out with the ambiguous choice that you might learn something mm-hmm. because the equal possibilities you might be killed for that choice. You've set up the situation where you're not going to die from 11 choices, so you've made it safer to be ambiguous. Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's something that, that may be why there's, you know, when you just have one choice, there really is this ambiguity aversion. And certainly in, in imaging studies, people see activation in the amygdala when you're faced with a, an ambiguous choice, the amygdala that's sort of, you know, sort of the center of fear in sort of inverted commas. So your conclusion was that the more choices that are given, the more that somebody is willing to deviate from their safe choice and explore other options. Is that what? Yes. That is your... So the more choices they get, the more they're willing to explore that other option. So you're you're talking about two things, um, anxiety, risk-taking, but also I would imagine if you're not risk-averse, you're looking for gain, right? And so this gives people more room. The way you set it up is they might be gaining some information by taking this risk. Yes. So I, I just want to make the distinction between risk and ambiguity. Um, so they, these are two yes. different types of, of uncertainty. Mathematically, you can, there are certain cases where they're, they're the same, but psychologically they're very different. So risk is sort of uncertainty that you can't learn about. It's like the toss of a fair coin. Right? If I toss a fair coin a million times, I don't gain any more information about it. That's the choice where you have only one choice, and you have to give up your safe position to go for that choice, which you cannot really know about. Right, yeah. So, yeah that's classic that's, risk. That's classic risk. You can't, you know, you, you can't learn anything by observing the toss of a, of a fair coin. It's that's not, 100% Yeah, risk. you can't learn anything. Whereas if... You know, you could consider another case where you're betting on the toss of a coin that's that you know is biased. It's got either two heads or two tails, but you just don't know which type of coin it is. And there, you you know, 
mathematically, the odds of any one toss being heads or tails is, is equal, it's 50-50. But if I observe the outcome of just one toss of those coins, well, I know now for sure what the outcomes of all the rest of the tosses of that coin is going to be. And that uncertainty there is ambiguity, which is uncertainty that you can reduce by learning. And that's the type of uncertainty that we had in this case. We were manipulating how much uncertainty there was, how much ambiguity was, how much uncertainty there was that they could reduce by learning and by sampling the ambiguous option. But you did it in two methods. You did it, one, by extending the number of choices possible, Mm -hmm. so they had multiple times to learn. Yes. And you did it also by manipulating the values of the ambiguity, which also loaded their choices. Yes, so we can, we can, there's, 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 there's two types of value associated with un- ambiguity or You're with the ambiguous option. There's a trick that I'm not getting. Yeah, so there's there's the value that they see when they when they play that ambiguous option, which is you know say 50 points. But then there's this sort of internal value in their head, which is how much do I value information by playing that option? That that's the sort of ambiguity bonus that we're getting at. And and the thing we're sort of trying to measure is how how much how big that ambiguity bonus is, that sort of modulates the, um, the reward that they see. So if I can just say that again, you see one sample from the ambiguous bandit, say it's 50 points, and say you see three samples from the other bandit, say that's got a mean of 55. And then what goes on in their heads, what we're sort of postulating goes on in someone's head is that they take that 50 points from the ambiguous one and they add on an ambiguity bonus, say it's 10 points, to get a number 60. And then they compare those numbers, the 60 with the 55. And now the ambiguous one has a higher value. And that's why they're driven to choose this ambiguous option. Ah, well, but it could have a minus 10 value of an ambiguity choice of a loss. Right, so that would be the ambiguity aversion. So ah. in, in, the, in the single choice... We, we saw a hint of it in our, in our task, and we saw a hint of ambiguity version that the bonus becomes negative when they only have one choice. Um, but we didn't see a strong effect like people have seen previously in the literature. And we think that is um, probably because just the way we, we set up the experiment, the actual difference in ambiguity between just one sample and three samples isn't actually that big. Um, so we think that might be... Uh, part of why we're not seeing a big ambiguity aversion effect for the one choice. And just broadly speaking, do you how much you uh, think about this in the stock market? Now, that's a big leap, but somebody's thinking about a stock, they know some information, but you don't really know there's stuff you don't know about it. Right? Emotional right. stock picking versus right. several facets of information that you have that makes it, that makes it somewhat known. Right, right. So there's, there's def- I mean, there's definitely a huge amount of ambiguity in the stock market. Um, where, where it's slightly different to our case is that in the stock market, you can kind of sit out and still get information. So you don't have to buy a stock to get information about that stock. Whereas in, in our case, you had to choose the ambiguous option to get information about it. And I think that's an important difference. But when people see an ambiguous option, they're evaluating it. It's not a box over mm-hmm. there, right? People are doing an evaluation of whether it has more value to look in that direction than the known safe value. Yes. And that evaluation is very important. What clues there are, 
So your ambiguous choice was 10 points lower than your safe choice. Mm -hmm. um, that's enough to be averse to trying again, but it's not enough to be completely averse from trying again. Right. right. So you have to know what is that value that makes them completely averse to trying again versus that it's within a certain parameter of their given choice that they're willing to make another stab at ambiguity. Right, so yeah, so that's what we were trying to measure with the ambiguity bonus was where that sort of indifference point is, if you like. I see. Um, and actually, you'll you'll find that people don't have a they, they don't have a sort of a step function curve where they get to the indifference point and they're hundred percent ambiguity versus you know they go slightly below their indifference point they're hundred percent of the known option. You actually see a sort of shallow curve, and they will choose you know they'll choose sort of randomly around that. Uh, around that sort of central um, uh, central indifference point. So if I were a layperson and I was going to ask you, can you describe what your goals were? Can you tell me? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> the simplest ones are always the hardest ones. Um, so so what, what, we, you know, what we really want to understand is, is the neuroscience of this explore-exploit dilemma, this trade-off between getting information and getting immediate reward. And this is something that sort of comes up in, in, in all kinds of learning, right? If I, if I learn a little bit and I just focus on maximizing based on a little bit of learning, I'll be kind of myopic and I won't, I won't search the space properly and I'll get trapped in sort of a minimum, a local minimum in that space. Um, so I need to explore somewhat. But if I explore too much, if I explore all over the place and don't pay attention to reward at all, then I, I you know, I'm, if I'm a caveman in the you know in the prehistoric era i'm just going to starve um so so what we really wanted to know was how people do this trade-off um and how ambiguity plays a role in this trade-off and so now the, the next step is to try to understand the neuroscience of it by doing um fmri by doing eeg by measuring the the pupil diameter of people doing this um doing this task which turns out to correlate with um, some deep brain structures that we think might be involved in this kind of decision. Um, so I think that's the sort of big picture. I don't know if that's a lay summary or not, but that's the sort of big picture that we're trying to get at. And do you assume that maybe um, car dealers and people like that know this, right? They already know this, and uh, what I've been interested in decision neurosciences, often the marketing people know these things and, right. all, and neuroscience is now saying, okay, yeah, well, let's... We, yeah, we were playing catch-up with those guys. So I, I think um, w one case where you can kind of see this is, is, you know, you're buying something on Amazon and you can return it for free. And that's like extending your horizon. You get to make the decision twice. You get to choose the ambiguous thing that you can buy it, you can try it, and if you don't like it, you can just send it back. Um, and no cost to you. And that's like extending the horizon. And the idea there is that by having this longer time horizon, people are being more ambiguity averse and maybe picking something unknown that they wouldn't otherwise buy. And so they're being less risk averse and they'll spend their money? You're, you're, this isn't... <coughs> I would say ambiguity of us, okay. so that they, you know, we'll they try different kind of music or a different yeah, different kind of something because they're not they're not locked into buying it. Whereas if you're, you know, if you buy something and there's no money back guarantee and you can't return it, then you're going to be much more cautious in in buying something because you know you're stuck with your choices and you might be disappointed and, and you might and be disappointed exactly, uh -huh. exactly. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, 
the decision to be more amb- ambiguous Increasing the, increasing the ambiguity is that it could actually be creative and my, when I first heard you talk I, I thought oh well what you're really looking at is if I'm not if I thought about it as risk if I'm willing to, to uh, take something I don't know I might actually learn more so there, there's something about creativity and opportunity to think differently learn more that they are going to have um, they won't be tested for eight segments so they can go whichever way they want to go for the first date you might see them sort of explore more in, in those eight little modules right. you know than if you say okay you I'm going to test you at the end of each one right right that's really interesting that's 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 a that's a really interesting idea. Um, yeah, we'd we'd actually not thought about it in terms of sort of practical education, which is a bit silly given that we're at Princeton University. But it would be interesting, and I, I wonder if you could even design an experiment to test this. It's probably it's probably been done where people have done lots of little tests every so often versus one big test at the end. Um, I think that that would be. But even really how you presented yeah. it about the, which, if I'm coming to this conference and I have, I have 50 dis- things I'm going to have to make, that leap to say, you know, I don't even know who that is, but I'm just going to go. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a curiosity. I was thinking if yeah. you were, it's a sort of a curious, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're more curious curiosity. by nature or by right. temperament, you will be... But there's a weighing scale. Curiosity is measured also by the threat of loss. And by security, the, the whole issue of whether you will actually have consequences for your choice. Mm-hmm. To choose to go to a different tribe rather than your own, as you said in the initial choice, to go with an out group rather than stay with your in group, mm-hmm. involves consequences. Yes. And consequences are what we measure in terms of But being there may be gains, right? And so mm-hmm. But we need to have a hint that those gains are possible and how much gain is possible. It certainly is not for 5% improvement. It's from some larger threshold than 5%. Right, right. So there's, yeah, so there's this... Um, playoff. This, this playoff of costs and transaction costs and you know, threat of dying or, or whatever that comes into this. Right. That sort of, um, I, I would sort of put that sort of almost before this ambiguity bonus manipulation mm-hmm. that it's all that it all comes in should all factor in you add up the value that's associated with you know how, how good you think it's going to be what the consequences might be coming as a cost um, I mean it's exciting you know you can play games and map these onto different brain areas you can say like OFC is doing with values and ACC is doing costs you know this is extremely lib but you know f- for me to be talking about that people have been studying this kind of right. stuff um, much, much more thoroughly than I can. But it's learning, right? Yeah, or the is, excitement is of gain. Uh, again, back to your stock market example. The point is that people act very irrationally, and mm-hmm. they will jump to some possible bonus, which is an unknown choice, and give up security given the right conditions. Given the right conditions, yes. And uh, and this is something that that we we didn't really talk about. Was you know, is are you living in a world where it's right to be an optimist, where things usually work out for the best? For example, in a, in, a, in a rising stock market, right? Or, or are you living in a world where it's right to be a pessimist? Mm-hmm. Sort of what the culture is, or what? Well, the culture is, or, or what the sort of prior, we would, we would call it the prior, prior belief, sort of right? Where your exactly. priming is coming from. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another question I have, which is going to be, I think, our final question, which is that you said most people opt for the secure known value. What about that group that doesn't opt for that secure value? 
yeah, that you looked up. We we've we've not broken it down like that yet. What what we do see though is is regardless of, of of what you do on that first trial, whether you're ambiguity seeking or reverse, when you've just got one choice, you become more ambiguity seeking the more choices you get. So, yeah, it's 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 really interesting. The people who are ambiguity seeking, even when they've got one choice, maybe they're. High rollers. High rollers, yeah. So this, this differs from the Wisconsin card sorting, which is more a risk. Is that where you uh, You mean Iowa gambling. Task. Iowa gambling, yeah. that's what it's called. Yeah, so Iowa gambling um, task has a has an element of ambiguity at the start for the first block where, you're, uh, where you don't know what the risks are. And then it becomes a game of risk after you've sampled you the decks enough. Then you learn it, and then you decide whether you're going to take the risk or not. Yeah, so, so there, there's some really interesting results we've been you know reading about how different age groups will perform differently on the Iowa gambling task in different phases of it so at the start it seems that as you get older you get worse I, th- I think that's correct at uh, making the decisions under ambiguity but you're the same making the decisions under risk well I was thinking that adolescence I imagine um, they well, why don't you tell us? Well, so that, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, you know, it's it's not my area of expertise, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I think it it's it's fairly intuitive that adolescents are at least more risk seeking. However, they want their peers, right? They they want, they want their peers. So there's a whole sort of social element to it as well. But it could it could be that we're mistaking risk taking for ambiguity seeking, the, or, or, or that they are in their own heads that. that or they're following their peers. Or they're following their peers, yeah. So, or they're trying to impress their peers. So there's this whole social dimension. Um, and, you know, that's why experiments like this are kind of fun. It'd be interesting to try this on, you know, adolescents um, and to see are there, are there differences in adolescents versus sort of um, older people. But with the adolescents, I think you'd have to test them individually and then test yes. them with their peers, knowing their peers are going to see the results. Right, right. And you can throw in the Monte Carlo card and have one of the peers <laughs> be somebody who always seeks risk. Right, uh-huh. right, right, right. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's totally a You're having too much direction. fun. That's you know? very interesting. Oh, we're, yeah, we love it. This is a, so this is for, a lot of fun. So for our listeners, can you tell us, uh, can they go somewhere and see your experiments and learn about them? Yes, yeah, so they can go to my website, which is pretty straightforward. It's robertwilsonphd.com. Couldn't get robertwilson.com. There's about a million of us. Um, but robertwilsonphd.com. Or if they go to the Princeton PNI website, um, they can follow a link to the lab there, to Jonathan Cohen's lab there. Okay, we'll try to provide those web links on our website. And so thank you very much for talking with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye.